Jesus, we have gathered today to pause and acknowledge just how powerful you are. And Lord, there's so many ways that we need that power to be stirred up in us and for us to see that power being worked for us. And so, Father, we pray that as we open your word, what you have said to us, that we would hear your voice and that, Holy Spirit, you would come and apply it to us, to our hearts and our souls and our minds and our bodies, so that we can faithfully participate in the way of Jesus together. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. You have a seat. Hello. Hello. Um, We're glad that you are here this morning, and we are looking forward to just a good summer together. One of the things that we want you to know is as we return back inside, as we return back inside in a couple weeks, we will continue to live stream and I know you, you are tempted to say, we've heard you say that before, Kyle, this time for real. We have bought many things and asked many questions, and it's going to work just right. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter 5. So if you've got a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 5. The opening words of 1 Peter name the readers of that letter he he names them exiles of the dispersion, exiles. In 586 BC, the Babylonian empire came into the southern kingdom of Israel, carried all of its population away into captivity where they dwelt in a foreign land that spoke a strange language, that had strange customs. They were there for 70 years. They were in exile And while in exile, the children of Israel sing, which is a remarkable thing when you think about it, to sing in the midst of of exile. And one of the songs that they sang is found in Psalm 137. It says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, this was sarcastic, sing us one of the songs of Zion. The song says, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? As we turn to First Peter, Peter is addressing people centuries later, thousands of miles in a different place where we would now know modern-day Turkey to be. And he opens a letter and he applies this experience of exile to his readers. He spiritualizes this real event in Israel's past and applies it to them, to these Christians who find themselves, by the power of the preaching of God's God's word, waking up in a world that geographically hasn't changed, but they now have this living hope that comes from the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They belong to God's family. They are his temple where he dwells and his house where he lives. And in all of this, they suffer. 
They are maligned. They are accused. Peter tells them that submission and honor are vital practices core to the way of Jesus, absolutely necessary and vital for them to walk their exile and their journey of alien wandering. As we come to the last pages of First Peter, the last few paragraphs, uh, we hear Peter offering insight and wisdom Three key reminders to these exiles who struggle to sing the Lord's song in this foreign land that is both so familiar and so strange. And in this passage this morning, it comes in 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, he reminds these exiles that they are cared for, he reminds these exiles that they are confident, and he reminds them that their suffering will come to a conclusion. Let me read to you 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 6, all the way through verse 14. Humble, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, under the mighty hand of God, that at the right time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We'll double click on all four of those words. It's really interesting. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then in verse 12, and this is where I want us to start today. These are the parts of the Bible that we tend to like skip past, but look at what Peter says. By Sylvanus, this is verse 12, by Sylvanus... A faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, everything I've written, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, interesting, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, as long as you stay six feet away, of course. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In this last paragraph, uh, uh, Peter does a number of things. First of all, he notes that Sylvanus, otherwise known as Silas, has been his, here's your $20 word for the Sunday, amenuensis. That means stenographer. Uh, It's not uncommon for authors of the New Testament letters in particular to dictate and then have somebody else write for them. So Peter is dictating this letter. And Sylvanus, or Silas, a person who shows up in the book of Acts, which, by the way, we're starting July 12. Uh, Sylvanus has written briefly for him. Peter's dictating Sylvanus's writing, declaring the true grace of God. But he says, she who is at Babylon. Okay, hang on. We just talked about how the Babylonian Empire carried the Israelites into exile in 586 BC. The Babylonian Empire was wiped out by a series of empires, and now we're talking about Babylon again. Here's what's again happening. Not only is Peter spiritualizing exile, he's doing what the Old and New Testament do pretty frequently, spiritualizing Babylon, a real geographical place, but he's spiritualizing it to represent all humanity that lives in opposition to God. In fact, Babylon has its roots in Genesis chapter 11, Babel. 
this group of humans opposed to God, seeking in their pride to show off. And, and even in the book of Revelation, Babylon is used a, a, as a symbol for opposition and humanity's rebellion to God. But he says, she who is at Babylon, he's talking about Rome. He's talking about empire. He's talking about the organization of human life in a way that is opposed to God. He's speaking that the church at Babylon, the church of which Peter is a leader, the church in which Peter is writing, who is, somewhat, who is likewise chosen, just like these elect exiles, sends their greetings. By the willows there, they, we hung up our lyres. For our captives required of us songs and our tormentors mirth. And they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Well, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This is how the, the words that Peter has for us, written from spiritual Babylon, from the, the, the empire that would eventually crucify him upside down, if tradition is true, writing from the heart of this empire, this empire that will one day initiate not just this slow drip drop of persecution against the Christians, but systemic, intentional, ugly persecution against them. Peter says, stand firm in this grace. Here's how you sing the song of Zion in a foreign land. And it starts with this in, in, in verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he, because he cares for you. If you look back at five, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, you'll remember that Peter called on us to clothe ourselves in humility because humility is the engine that drives the discipline of honor and submission. And moving toward one another in humility is what it looks like to live under God's mighty hand where we trust in God's ability to exalt us at the proper time. Remember that Peter is speaking to Christians who every day are maligned and mocked and slandered simply for following the way of Jesus. They've been humiliated. Peter instructs them to humble themselves so that God in his own time can exalt them. One commentator says, neither the specific time nor the kind of exaltation are specified. So it is best to understand the statement generally, as if to say that in the time God deems best, whether in this life or in the life to come, he may lift you up from your humble conditions and exalt you in the way that seems best to him. Perhaps only in terms of increased spiritual blessing and deeper fellowship with himself, perhaps also in terms of responsibility, reward, or honor, which will be seen by others as well. When we suffer, we long for the suffering to end. We long to be exalted over that suffering. And we don't know when that will happen. We just know that we will. And because of our certainty in God's ability to exalt us at the proper time, we are set free to cast our anxieties on God, our loving Father, who, verse 7 says, cares for you. Let's nerd, out about the, let's nerd out about grammar for a second. Casting is a participle that modifies the verb humble yourselves. We become humble people when we regularly cast our anxieties on God our Father. Peter has remarkable insight into the human condition. It turns out that we struggle to humble ourselves. We struggle to submit to one another in love. We struggle to honor one another. 
because we do not trust that we will be taken care of. We do not trust that we will be protected and loved. I can't honor my spouse. I can't honor my boss. I can't honor the people in my community because what if I do that and I come out on the losing end? I need to protect. I need to puff up. I need to be like a puffer fish and make myself bigger in the room than I actually am. The key to humility and honor and submission in the way of Jesus isn't just thinking less of yourself, of being self-deprecating, or C.S. Lewis would say smarmy. This, this is how we grow in, in humility. Dallas Willard says, Jesus was relaxed because he understood the sufficiency of God's provision. He was capable of doing the right thing without fear of what might happen to him because he knew the father would take care of him. See, we don't do the right thing because we don't trust deep down that our father loves us and cares for us. And if we do the right thing, we'll have our backs. The way we become more humble and more honoring in the midst of this suffering in the midst of our exile, isn't to puff ourselves up with political ideology or being smarter or being more spiritual or being more this or that. It's simply, it's simply this radically entrusting ourselves to God's care by casting our anxieties on him in prayer. The best thing that happened in our time of quarantine is that, it, the, 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 listen, when God asks you how you spent March 15th to a few weeks ago, the one thing that you will not be able to say is that you were too busy to pray. This time of quarantine that may or may not continue in some strange ways in the future is a school of prayer. It is learning to be still with God and to cast our anxieties on him like you cast a stone in water. It's the same verb. See, we... In our exile, we are cared for and, and we are confident. As we are, cared for, as we are cared for by our gracious Father, we increase in our confidence. So Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A roaring lion. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See, Peter says, you see this, this human face of suffering and accusation. What you don't see, what you don't see is your adversary, the devil, his, his title in scripture actually means, his title in scripture actually means accuser. What you don't see is this unseen force manipulating human agents to cause your suffering. This is why Paul says your enemy is not flesh and blood, but spiritual beings in the unseen places. And so Peter says, be sober minded, be watchful. You have an adversary, the devil who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Peter says our response to the reality of spiritual darkness isn't fear. It isn't to kind of define this away in our minds as a, an ancient way of thinking that we now know better because of science. I'm all for science, but we don't want to explain this away. No, we resist. It's interesting. Scripture tells me to avoid the world, to flee temptation, but to stand firm, to stand firm, stand firm against the powers of the evil one. Peter says, be sober-minded be sober and, and be watchful. As we live in this reality, as we live in the reality that Satan exists, uh, 
we are reminded kind of by C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters who says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We stand firm in the knowledge that our enemy prowls, seeking to steal, kill, and destroy, but we stand firm, neither too disinterested or too interested, knowing that Jesus has ultimate authority and victory over the forces of evil in our midst. Peter tells us, this is interesting, to resist the devil, a verb that implies active, determined opposition through confrontation. Peter, uh, This verb that Peter uses is used of the Egyptian magicians who confronted Moses. When confronted with evil, we resist. When confronted with spiritual evil, we bind it in the name of Jesus. How do I do that, Kyle? You say, I bind you in the name of Jesus. How do we stand against the devil? Well, let me tell you this. They don't need yelled at. Uh, they don't need screamed at. And often our yelling is kind of a cover-up. It's a way that we amp ourselves up into courage. Um, the other night I was, um, uh, I mean, even in Acts chapter 16, Paul is confronted by a spiritual being. And he just says, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. It doesn't say that he yelled doesn't say that he screamed, didn't say that he like, I mean, all he did was boom and it was done. A, a few nights ago, uh, last week sometime, I was climbing the stairs and Steph had already gone upstairs and I just had this, I haven't even told you this, I had this strange experience of fear wash over me while I was climbing the stairs and I'm not, we weren't watching something scary on TV, I just did not want to turn around and, uh, and all I... I, there was this moment where inside of me rose up like, I don't like this feeling of fear. And, and, and then all I did was, under my breath, I just said, in the name of Jesus, I am protected. And I went about my business. In the name of Jesus, I am protected. Not cower, not run, stand. We flee the temptations of our flesh. We avoid the world, but we stand against the temptations of the evil one. We've been given that authority. We're going to get to that in the book of Acts. This is actually like all a really great. I'm, I'm hoping you have 20 more questions than I can answer about that because we're going to just go into the book of Acts and find 80 more is what we're going to do. But Peter says that, Peter says that we can stand firm in that because of the confidence of our faith. Because of the care of God and the confidence of our faith, we know that our suffering is going to come to a conclusion After you have suffered, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, some of you have been suffering for a lot longer than a little while. After a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, if you happen to have your own Bible and have a pen, it's kind of sweaty, but you could underline will himself, he will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, Peter says that our suffering will come to an end. He doesn't give us a time. He doesn't give us a time in the same way he didn't give us a time of when we would be exalted up in verse 6 and 7. He doesn't tell us when our suffering will end. He just tells us that it will. 
whether our suffering ends in this life or the life to come, Peter says that we can expect to be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. To be restored, these are, I just wanted to see, like, sometimes the Bible just uses words and we're like, okay, four words, move on. And we don't like stop and think maybe the Lord really has something, an intention for each one of these words. So to be restored is to be made fully complete, fully complete with respect to any resource or ability that was lost through suffering. Whatever suffering has taken away from you, whether that be a resource or an ability, the promise is that we will be restored. We will be made complete in regard to these things. Psalm 90 verse 15 says, he will make us glad for as many days as we have been afflicted. That is what it means to be restored. To be confirmed, you'll be restored, confirmed, is to be set firmly in any position or privilege that the suffering took away was a privilege or a position removed from you in your suffering, you will be confirmed again in that. And the image that comes to mind with this is the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. He goes out into a far country and he comes back after having basically just wished his father was dead, the gravest insult he could ever offer his father. And his father says, quick, get a robe, put sandals on his feet, put a ring on his finger. See, he thought he had lost the, his position in his father's family, but he was confirmed he was set firmly in the position that his suffering took away. See, it says we will be strengthened. In suffering, we develop weakness. In suffering, we develop inadequacy. But this promise is that at the end of our suffering, we will be infused with power to overcome that weakness, to overcome that inadequacy, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, Restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. And actually, I like the better translation for this word is settled. Like how I settle Jack in his bed at night. I give him his blankie. I, I, we turn off the light. I, I hold him and rock him for a few minutes. Then I stand up and we sing a song to him. And then we lay him down. We settle him. To be settled is to be made at home in any rightful place with suffering removed you from. See, suffering removes us from our rightful place. It, it, it inflicts us with weakness and inadequacy. It removes position and privilege. It removes respect and resource and ability. And the promise of God is at the end of our suffering, whether in this life, but most certainly in the life to come, you will be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established and, 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 and verse 10, I love it, says that God himself will do these things. God himself will do these things. The Greek is emphatic. He's not going to use a hired hand. He's not going to ask an angel. He himself will do these things. And it's like in the book of Revelation that says, when the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven and there is a new earth, it says that he wiped away every tear from their eye and there is suffering no more. He did that. Our confidence that there is a conclusion to our suffering really does come from the care of our Father. These are the gifts that Jesus gives us because Jesus walked the earth as an exile. Homeless, accused, impoverished, misunderstood, 
maligned. Eventually, he was put to death on false charges. Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And through that resurrection, Peter says, we have a living hope in our exile, which is why as we hang up our liars on the willow of this, on the willows of this life, as we live as aliens and foreigners in a world that is so strange and not our home, we sing the songs of Zion because Jesus taught us how because he himself is our song, which is why every week as a church, we come to this table. Every week when we're together, we, we come to this table. I'm gonna pray and then we'll receive communion together and worship a little bit. Father, you send us Jesus. And Jesus, we are so eager for the day that you will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us until you do, we, we offer you our lives. We entrust ourselves to you in the same way that Jesus entrusted himself to you when he said, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. We entrust ourselves to you, a God who judges impartially, knowing at the right time we will be exalted. And in our waiting, God, I pray for the steadfastness of faith. I pray that over our spiritual family today, whether they're in my eyesight or listening later, I, I pray that you, uh, Jesus, would strengthen where they are weak, that you would establish where it feels unsettled, where you would confirm, you would confirm where they feel forgotten and lost, that you would restore in every way. Jesus, as we come to this table, we are eager to meet you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.